And again, we're kind of looking, looking forward to kind of getting into this new section uh, where we talk about um, you know, kind of different literature. And uh, so, we're, so we're looking forward to this. And um, so let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the chance that we have to spend this time again this evening. Father, to be able to look at your word, to see the principles and truths that are here. Father, I thank you for the opportunity, um, again, to, to not only study the principles, but Father, ultimately to study your word and to recognize that you have given us this not only as a, as a textbook, but Father, more as a love letter, more of a, of a, a sharing of your heart that we would know your, you, that we would know ourselves, and Father, that we would discover the keys of, of, a, of a relationship with you. I thank you for... Uh, for each person that's here and for their desire to grow in that knowledge study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, did I, I think I might have turned, did I turn this one off? Or here we go. Okay. We, okay, so what we're, um, we're kind of up to this, you know, that we've kind of dealt with the first couple weeks and some basic principles interpreting the Bible and then the second two on, on principles of more devotional reading and, and what I'm going to do this, this evening is to start off with kind of an introduction to literary styles, kind of this big picture, and then we're going to start to dive into historical narrative, which is probably the biggest single literary style in the Bible. So we're going to spend more time there than any other. And then, uh, so we'll start, start that this week, and then next week we'll, we'll kind of finish historical narrative, and then we'll, uh, the following week I think we're going to talk about uh, poetry and wisdom literature, so that's like uh, the Psalms and Proverbs are the two main examples of that, but not only ones. And then the last week we'll talk about prophecy. And um, so that's always an interesting place to end, right? And uh, so uh, what I would like to do then today is to, again, start off with just this whole idea of, of literary style. And, um, and, and, and we'll explain what we mean as we go along, but it's, this is kind of the introduction to the whole idea of it. Um, when, you, when we talk about one of the things that you, know, that you hear an evangelical that's committed to the Bible, so we're committed to, you, know, you, know, you hear exegetical expository study, but one of the other things is, is literal interpretation. And so we're totally committed to the idea of literal interpretation. However, that being the case, I'm gonna say that there's a danger of misinterpreting and wrongly applying the concept of literal interpretation. Um, and and you say, okay, we're totally committed to that. But again, sometimes we can take this idea and we can take something that's really good and we misunderstand what it means or we, we overextend a rule beyond what it's really intending to say. Um, when we, we're really looking at the, the key question is, is what does it mean to be committed to the literal interpretation of the Bible? And so we're committed to literal interpretation, but what does it mean? And what I want to point out here is that there's, um, there's a meaning that it does mean that we've really got to hold on to. We've got to defend that. But then there's also an aspect of sometimes over-applying the principle. And we take an idea and we, and we apply it beyond its literal meaning. And, and we miss something that is really important to see. Um, so here's, here's, first of all, the first statement. What does it mean? is we must interpret the Bible according to the literal and logical meaning. Um, so what that means is, is when we study it literally and logically, as it flows from the words in the context, 
that we should, we should apply that meaning. And again, you have people, especially now, that are getting into postmodernism, that you know, it's kind of like, well, it means whatever you say. Um, you've had you know, people that have you know, kind of interpreted very broadly. And no, we're committed to the literal interpretation of the Bible, meaning that you study it and you understand the literal and logical meaning as it flows from the context. And again, this is probably, if you hear the concept of evangelical, and you say, well, what's an evangelical? This is probably the single defining issue in evangelicalism. We believe the inerrancy of the Bible, and not only the inerrancy, but then the literal interpretation. You know, so sometimes you'll have people that will talk about, we believe the Bible is authoritative. Uh, I remember one of my kids were looking at, at schools, and they were looking at some Christian schools, and they were kind of looking pretty broadly, and that's one of the things that we t- teach. Just, okay, let's look at the doctrinal statement. What do you think of that? Well, it sounds good. And the first thing I look at is, what does it say about the Bible? And you'd have a lot of schools that would say, we believe the Bible is authoritative, which sounds good. It sounds like the same thing. But it's, it's using words to actually say something very, very different than what we believe. So they're saying it's authoritative, but it's not inerrant. It's not, and, and usually what that means is when you study it, it's authoritative, but we don't interpret it literally. We don't inter- interpret it according to the literal meaning. So there's a, a looseness and, you know, so it means whatever we want it to say, but whatever we think it says, it has authority behind it. Um, non-evangelical su- suggests that much of the Bible shouldn't be taken literally. Um, and again, we're going to come, we're going to look at some of these a little more in depth as we go. But probably the best example of this is the whole story of creation. And, and uh, so you have a lot of people that will argue that, you know, that the Bible is, well, it's, it should be allegory or it should be, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a... It's a poetic statement that just kind of talked about the way that, you know, that God was behind creation. And, and, but there's numerous places like that. It's, it didn't really happen, but it's a story that communicates that God was beyond the origin of the, or behind the origin of the world. And again, we're going to come back to that more next week and see that as an example. But that's a really common example that you'll have all kinds of people that will say that the Bible is God's word. It's authoritative but it's not necessarily inerrant, and we don't take it literal. And in fact, you, when you get into it, they'll kind of criticize people that take it literal. And uh, you know, we believe that there's an important idea of literal interpretation. Um, I don't know if even many of you remember back a couple years ago, this became, uh, it kind of, this theological debate spilled out into cultural uh, discussion. And when there were, uh, you know, they had the, a uh, couple, uh, especially the, the Bible series on, on, on the History Channel was really big. And so then the next year, all these theaters are like saying, oh, what people want is they want biblical movies. So that next year, they made all this putting a name, a biblical name on it, and loosely telling the story was a whole very, you know, very big jump. And so probably the best example was the, the movie Noah. Yeah. And I don't, if, I, did any of you, did anybody actually see that? Yeah. We're, we're not recommending that anybody see it. If you didn't see it, it there's no recommendation behind it. I read the review, that's Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is when you look at Noah, it was, it was a very imaginative, creative. It was just loosely based on the idea that there was a flood and God was involved and he had this guy Noah. And beyond that, I mean, it was really, really, really loosely. And, I mean, it was also really... Yeah, it was really strange. Um, 
Now, what happened is that there were some Christians that screened it before it was released, and they were really hoping to get all these Christians to promote it and get people from the churches to go see it. And they were surprised when these people that, you know, evangelicals all said they hated it. And, um, and, and the whole idea of license and telling the story. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, the, um, there was a guy from uh, National Religious Broadcasters. He said this, my intent reaching out to Paramount with this request was to make sure that everyone who sees this impactful film knows that it is an imaginative interpretation of scripture and not literal. And uh, they actually put like a, to kind of still the uproar, they actually put a little thing in the beginning, kind of a disclaimer that's saying this isn't the literal interpretation. And so, um, I mean, again, they were shocked that it, it totally bombed, you know, but because, and it shows that they don't understand, you know, the Christians or Bibles. Um, but that's a good example. You see, from, there were people that were involved, you had religious people that were involved in making that story, people that claim to be Christians, who don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and therefore don't in, and believe in the literal interpretation. And so they interpreted this story of Noah as kind of this, not a historical event, but this, um, this, you know, this allegory type of thing that said something. And then they took the license to interpret it as being primarily about global warming and uh, you know, about how, how people were misusing the, the environment and, you know, and, and basically God wanted to destroy all the humans and, and Noah disobeyed God and saved, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's a weird, it's, don't go see it. So the first idea is we must interpret the Bible according to the literal and logical meaning. Here's the second part, which we seldom talk about. We must interpret the scripture. Um, we must interpret the Bible according to its literary style. So when you talk about the literal interpretation of scripture, it's not only that we should always interpret it according to the literal and logical meaning, but also according to the literary style. So when you look at different parts of the Bible, what we're going to find is that different parts of the Bible say things but the fact of the matter is, it's some, like when we get to wisdom, you know, if the same statement is said in Proverbs as it is in, 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 in Ephesians, we interpret that statement differently. Because there's a literary style and there's certain rules about what that statement is meant to be saying. Or when you look at the, you know, the, the Psalms, or when you look at, um, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time when, the last week on a, on a pro prophetic you know, one of the huge mistakes we make on prophetic light language or literature, especially apocalyptic, is people try to read it like it's, like it's Ephesians. And the fact is, is that's a totally different literary style. And you can't, read, you, know, you can't read all the literary styles the same way because it's a question of what they're intending to say. You see, when you look at that, you know, the, the, the different literary styles, they're, they're you know, trying to say different things. So let's say, for example, um, let me take a, a very, I can totally affirm the inerrancy of the Bible. I can totally affirm literal interpretation. However, when I look at this, am I denying the, interpret, the, the, the inerrancy of the Bible if I say that the, the, the prodigal son, that story never happened? No, because it's a, it's, a, it's a parable. You can tell there that it's a parable. It's not, Jesus isn't saying, let me tell you an event that happened. 
we can tell that he's putting it in a, in a style of a parable. And there are certain rules of a parable, and, and we understand, okay, here are the rules, and, and, and here's what a parable is saying and what it isn't saying. Um, and, um, you know, but we've got we've to recognize that it's not making claims. It's, it's you know, if, if you have the story of the, you know, the, the, the prodigal son, let's say, well, you know, what we have there is very different than, let's say, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Okay, well, one's a parable. It's written as a parable. We know the literary style. It's told as a parable. The other is, is told as historical event. And so you have to interpret each according to the literary style. They're each intending to say something, and, and we have to follow the rules of that style to understand what they're intending to say. Does that make sense? And that's a, it's a huge mistake um, you know, that people make. Now, when we think of this, there's a, there, here's one of the big problems. Let me, let me ask you, what are the, when you think of literary styles in our day, what are some of the literary styles? Pardon me? Well, like, so like, you know, we'd start with fiction. Nonfiction, fiction, and anything else that you? Historical, historical fiction. Even biography would be kind of a, you know. Editorial. Editorial. Yeah, that's a, and that's a very different literary style. So if you're reading something that you know it's editorial, which even in that, people, I've heard people argue about, you know, that, that a lot of times you have things that are written, like in the newspaper today is written as a news article that in reality is editorial. And, and, and so there's, a, and there's conflict there because you're saying, okay, there's a different style even in our papers. You can pick up a newspaper and there's a very distinct style that is editorial, which is different than news reporting. And, and if you confuse those, it leads to frustration because you're saying, no, this should be this. Okay, now here's the, here's the challenge that we have. The challenge is that most of the literary styles of the Bible are no longer used today. And so when we come and try to understand the Bible and we're trying to understand these literary styles of you know, even poetry and what that means and wisdom and historical, uh, in historical narrative and and prophecy, and especially apocalyptic. And you know, we're going to find all these different literary styles that we're going to look at, but most of these literary styles that we look at aren't used today. And so not only are they not used today, many of them haven't been used for centuries. And so here we are trying to read these, these books that were written in a literary style that were, that were very well known at that time, and that have certain guidelines and rules for understanding them, but because we don't know how to read that literary style, it's not natural to understand. And let me even give um, a, um, an example with that. Uh, has anybody, and I, I don't know how to even say his last name right, Michael Scherrer, uh, if anybody's, it's, he, he's well known for a book, The Killer Angels. Um, if you've never heard of him, it's, it's actually kind of a very interesting person. He, he, he wrote a, this book and then didn't sell it all. It didn't sell at all. And the reason was, is it was actually creating a new literature style. It was, it was considered one of the first major books of historical fiction. And if you don't know historical fiction, what it is, is it's trying to tell historical, and, and this guy would study the characters, he'd read all the letters, and then he would try to write historical events 
but he would add you know, this, this interaction and the drama and, and, and discussions between the characters that, as far as we know, never took place. Or he, it's not recorded, so he's like guessing what they said, but he would try to write it in their voice. And the fact is, at that time, nobody read it because everybody's looking at it, and they're saying, well, what is this? Is this biography? Is this, you know, is this history? A conversation that's actually recorded. But these weren't recorded. But on the other hand, it's not fiction. This is actually trying to tell us, okay, these events happened, here's how it's happened, but it's telling us in a somewhat fictional way. And what's interesting is, is that book didn't sell at all because nobody knew how to read it. Um, now, that book was then, about 15 years, years later, was made into a movie, uh, the movie Gettysburg. And, and at that point in time, things had so changed that people liked the movie, they went back and the, movie, the book became a bestseller after he had passed away. Uh, nobody wanted to read it, but now historical fiction is really common. And his son has written all kinds of books, and there's all kinds, it's actually a very, very popular genre today. But back then, nobody knew how to read it. They read it, you know, they read it, and it was so uncomfortable because in, in people's mind, it either had to be history or it had to be fiction, and you didn't know how to blend these two. And so that was an example of sometimes, you know, you read, a, you read a different style, and if it's not something we're familiar with, it's really uncomfortable. And, you, you know, in this case, you don't know where to draw the line. What is history? What is fiction? And, the, and we, it was, people felt uncomfortable in that blend. Um, and that's, an, you know, that's just an example, though. So when you look at this and you say, okay, if the challenge is, you know, that we're saying that the, most of the literary styles are no longer used in our day, so then the question is, okay, how do we then... Um, interpret the Bible according to the literary style. That's the challenge that we have. And to do that, it involves, first of all, properly identifying the intended literary style of a book or a passage. And so when we look at that, we've got to say, okay, what is this? And most of them are pretty easy, generally. You know, so you look at it and you say, okay, the Gospels are historical um, narrative. And we know that you know, the Gospels, you know, the epistles are, are didactic. And you know that some are... Um, uh, you know, the wisdom literature and the Proverbs and, you know, but then you look at it and say, okay, what is, if we understand that, Song of Solomon, well, what is that? Is that poetic or is that wisdom? Is, is the Psalms? And, and so you see, you're trying to identify what they are because you've got to understand what it is to understand the rule. Now, there are some that people, again, will try to interpret. They'll, they'll t try to say, well, we're committed to a little interpretation, but they'll try to do that by changing the literature style. Um, a good example of this is my, my, my son Jonathan um, has taken a class at his school, and they, were, they had this professor who claimed to be evangelical, claimed to be, be Bible-believing, and, um, and she came out and was to class. She made the argument that Jonah was not historical, and she gave you know, this whole argument about you know, where, you know, you know, here's these other things from Nineveh, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from Nineveh and these stories, and the, you know, they had certain, um, you know, certain legends about a dove and about a fish, and, they had, and she took all these different ideas and said what this was doing is this was trying to tell it in a way that was, um, was very, uh, it was an allegory, but she tried to reinterpret it and say the rule was that it's, it, the literary style was intended to be an allegory, and therefore we should literally interpret according to the allegory. Now, how do you tell that? Um, it's later on, is that you, you try to figure out what are the guidelines of the literary style. And we're going to see some of this next week. 
And so what are the things that define an allegory versus a, a, you know, versus historical narrative? And so does it fit which rule? In this case, I'll tell you too, let's take this whole thing with Jonah. Um, there's two other things that we know that cause me to argue pretty strongly that Jonah is historical. And there are actually two other rules that we've already talked from from the first two weeks. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Can anybody, can you, can you think? If we just apply the rules that we've talked about before, up till now, can you think of any of the rules that would help us to know that this was not out? Right, that's right. Scripture interprets Scripture because Jesus talked about Jonah historic, as historical event. And so he referred to as Jonah was in the whale for three, in a belly for three days, so the Son of Man will be. And so he was not talking in it in terms of allegory. He was clearly talking about it in terms of, of so Scripture interprets Scripture. A little harder. And that's the role of the perspicuity of Scripture. And the thing is, is this, this, this lady made this really great argument but the thing is, is it's all based on historical, you know, historical study of that culture and legends of Nineveh and this and that. Stuff that no one would know if you just read the Bible. So in other words, if you pick up the Bible, you would never come to this conclusion. You had to be a scholar who went to school and was educated well beyond your wisdom to somehow figure out these <laughs> ideas and, and come to this conclusion. And so if the rule is the perspicuity of Scripture, if there's something that you would never see within the Scripture itself, well, no, that's not, that's not what it's claiming to say. Um, so, so the first thing is, again, um, and again, you have, um, you know, you have the parables are an example or things like that. The second one is, is understanding and applying the basic rules of interpreting that literary style. Um, you know, so what you're trying to do is you're saying, okay, now, and that's what we're going to do, is we're going to try, what are the literary styles, what are the basic rules? Um, and even when you, I, I, I'm just going to kind of throw this in because I was thinking about this, but there might be times that you even find something and you find the basic rules, but even when something deviates, you say, okay, why is it deviating? Okay, let me give you, I'm going to give a little example on this. Okay, so one of the rules of historical narrative is that when you're dealing with history, it uses names and places. It's very specific, all right? When you use allegory, you don't have names and places. You know, when you have a par it's like a parable. When you have the, the prodigal, prodigal son, it's a man who had two sons that lived in a certain place, and then he, the son went and took the money and went to a certain place. And so you don't have specifics. Now, every once in a while, you'll have something break the rule. And so I'll give you a great example of that is, is you think of in Luke 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you say, here's a parable, but yet Jesus seems to name somebody. Why does he give this person, he's, you know, the rich man and Lazarus, and, and, and if this is a parable, he shouldn't be naming somebody. That kind of breaks the rule of the parable. Okay, so then you have to say, why? Does that make it historical? Is it he's saying that this is actually a historical event? Well, then you dive deeper, and what you find is that, we go back to one of the rules that we talked about before, is that when you look at things that seem out of place, they actually are drawing your attention to something. It's there for a reason. And even in that story, it's incredible. It's beautiful. You know what Jesus' point of doing that is? Is when he said, well, Lazarus is one that is help of God. And what he's doing is he's giving one guy a name. He's actually giving both guys a name. 
See, he's calling, when he's calling Lazarus, Lazarus, he's saying, and here was a rich man, and his identity was his, 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 his wealth. That's who he was. That was his name. So it's out of place there, but it, when he draws out of place, it's suddenly, why is it out of place? And suddenly you say, oh, it's not that it's breaking the rules of, you know, of, of a parable, so therefore we should question whether it's history. We struggle with it, and then you look a little deeper, and you say, there's a reason. It's teaching us something that's beautiful, which actually, again, is applying the rules of Scripture we've already... It's, it's, it's wonderful. So, okay, what are some of the different... Introductory to the liter, different styles. These are the primary literary styles. You know, there are a couple others that we could get into a little bit, but these are the primary ones that are, you know, throughout the Scripture. Number one is the... Is, 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 um, is, you know, these are examples of the different styles. So the first one is called didactic, and that's teaching... Um, and that's basically most commonly in the epistles. And didactic is very direct, very teaching. Uh, it's very literal. And, you know, it's the epistles, Sermon on the Mount. Now here's, I'll tell you right off the bat, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spend any time on this. Because this is the only one that we still use. So this is, and, and this is why we're most comfortable, if you ever wonder why, why we're most comfortable going to the epistles, because it's, it's, it's the easiest for us to do. It's very straightforward. It's actually very consistent with the way that we would have teaching sections now. And so, there, you, know, so you could look at the principles of interpreting Scripture in general, but there aren't a whole lot of very distinctive rules that are uncomfortable for us in interpreting this type of literature because we, we use it all the time. It's, very, it's, again, very straightforward, very, very teaching. It's very comfortable. Now, I will tell you one of the most common mistakes that we make though when we interpret every other section of scripture is that we try to pull it, apply the rules of didactic to other parts of the Bible because we're used to the very direct theory. You have something in historical narrative or you have, you know, you have something in wisdom and you have a statement and what we tend to do is we tend to read it like it was didactic. We tend to read it like it was direct and it's telling us something right there. And, and that's where we sometimes you know, make, make mistakes because we're misapplying the set of rules. Uh, we're reading, and it's, it's natural that we do it because we're used to the style. We're not used to the other styles. Um, but again, we're not gonna really talk about these. It's, it's really all the rules that we've um, you know, talked about up till now. The second one is historical narrative. It's the most common literary style in the Bible. Uh, it's the part that you, you know, basically tells the stories. So you're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Josh, and, um, and, and again, we're going to spend a lot of time this second half of this week and next week on this. We'll probably spend more time on this than any other uh, literary style. Um, and again, there's a lot of things that we get wrong. We're going to kind of see of this. Um, you know, one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to try to force um, this idea of didactic where we say if something happened, we therefore are saying it's teaching us it should be normative. And, um, and because we expect that directness. But what we've got to realize is we're going to see this idea is that a lot of times it's telling us what happened. And then afterwards it will tell us about, in other ways, about whether it's something that we should repeat and it should be normative or not. Just because good people did it doesn't necessarily it's always mean it's normative. Um, let me give you an example of that. In fact, I only, I'm going to throw this out there, and we're going to come back to it later. Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45. And all, the, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as all had need. Now, does that teach that the ideal situation is communism? 
There, there are many people who are very, very intent, well-intended that say, okay, the ideal is that we can set up kind of a Christian commune, that, you know, that we own all things together, and you know, that, that's the ideal. And I've talked to even some scholars at times and saying, well, that's the ideal, but in reality, it's, you know, we live in a real light life. Is this the ideal? Is that what it's teaching us? Let's come back to that, but I'll just throw that out there. But you see the idea, the danger is that because it says something, we can jump to it and we can say, because it says that in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came, they spoke in tongues, therefore you should speak in tongues every time. If you, if you have, have you ever spoken in tongues and you don't have the Holy Spirit? But that's the argument. You see, that's not understanding the role of historical narrative. Uh, third of all is wisdom. We're going to come to this in two weeks. Um, and, and with, you know, wisdom is primarily the Proverbs, but you have some other areas. Um, but it's a different set of rules. Now, let me take you, take you again. I'm just going to refer to this. We'll come back to it. Proverbs 22, uh, 6, train up a child in the way he'll go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, we tend to read that as being didactic. So I've heard people claim that. That's a promise. I'm going to train up the child, and when they're older, you know, God, they're going to bring him back. And that's not what it is. You know, it's not a promise. It's not, you know, if that was in Ephesians, it would be a promise. What you have in, the, in, in wisdom is you have a statement about the way that the world generally works. And it's saying, if we do this, then this is generally how things will go. Now, the fact is, is that, you know, if I train up my child in the right way, I, I have every hope and confidence that they're going to follow Christ. And not, I'm going to just speak about it, not this one. You see, but it's saying, here's a principle here. This is generally the way that life works. But it's not a promise that God says, okay, he's going to promise us that this is never going to fail. Uh, if you want to have more confidence, I'll give you other reasons to have confidence, but it's other scriptures. Um, this one does give you some hope, but you see it's, it's, it's not a didactic promise. We're, we'll come back to all these. You know, I'm just kind of introducing them. I'm probably creating more questions, but that will get you to come back in two weeks. Um, the fourth one is poetry. That's the Psalms. And primarily the Psalms, again, you have other things um, beyond that as well. So when you, when you look at, at poetry, again, it has a different set of rules. And it has a different way of communicating things. And so it communicates things in, in, you know, in very, very different ways. And so reading it and interpreting it, um, you know, seeing things, it has a real you know, unique set of rules. And we're going to, when we deal with these in two weeks, you know, we're obviously just scratching the surface on, on all of them. Uh, the, the, the next one is, is, uh, is prophetic. And when you talk prophetic, you're talking about a huge swath of the Bible. Again, you're talking about, you know, a lot of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, um, you know the minor prophets. And so prophetic language or, or literature is, a, is, you know, a huge part of the Bible. And again, it has its own set of rules. But in that, there's a subset of prophetic, and that's apocalyptic literature. And that's a type of prophetic language that has very distinct, very unique rules that are related to general prophetic, but they're not the same. And so that's, and that's when we're talking about specifically you know, you know, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation. And so when you read those sections, there's a very, very distinct set of rules. And again, what we tend to get, have problems with is we tend to read these things too often like we're reading didactic. I, I remember an example um, when I was younger, you know, one of the big guy, you know, you know very, very popular, the hell, hell Lindsay, late planet Earth, and, 
And, uh, you know, I remember even seeing the movie, and, and, and he's looking at, um, you know, at the, at the book of Revelation. And I remember one of the things that he talked about, Jesus was going to return by 1948 because it promised, you know, Jesus promised this generation will not pass away, you know, and, and, until, I forget the exact wording, you know, but until, you know, the kingdom comes or whatever. And, and so he's saying this generation must have been Israel that was reformed in 1948, so that's a generation is 40 years and so you've got this, this promise reading it very literally, very, you know, um, he would read these sections about the, the locusts coming out of the sky, and he's saying, well, the locusts, you know, John's looking at these, and these locusts, they must be helicopters, and, and they're spitting fire, and that must be rockets. And, and the thing is, is what he's doing is he's reading it very literally, like it was written in Ephesians. And what you've got to see is that, no, apocalyptic is... is we should read it literally, but according to the literature style. And so if the literature style is meant to be interpreted figuratively, then reading it figuratively is the way that we should read it literally. Does that make sense? And so we're going to come back to that. And that's all introduction to what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. Um, so any, I've thrown a lot out there. I'll give you a break. Any questions or comments before we jump into historical narrative? Job would be, and again, there's a few that people talk about like it's somewhere in between, and so people argue of whether that's, um, some would say that it's historical, but most would say it's probably uh, wisdom. So it's, it's more written in, in the form of wisdom literature. And um, so that usually it would be considered, that's why it's by Proverbs instead of by other historical, is that most people would consider it wisdom literature. So... Well, whenever you have like a Bible like that, what you're dealing, if you say, if you have a prophecy Bible, that Bible has a lot of notes that are based on the theological presumptions of the person that wrote the notes. Yeah. And, and, you know, so you always got to look at it and you've got to say, okay, who is the person that wrote this? What are their theological assumptions? And, and then they're writing these notes that are kind of consistent with those theological assumptions. Interpretation. Right. You know, so for example, if you talk about prophecy, if it was a Hal Lindsey interpreted, you know, um, prophecy Bible, he tends to, you know, he, he reads Revelation according to the rules of didactic instead of apocalyptic. So I disagree with a lot of his, his interpretation because I think he doesn't understand apocalyptic literature very well. You know, you've got to go back and you've got to study. And it's the hardest one, apocalyptic. That hasn't been written in literally 1,800 years. You know, so, so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a style of literature that hasn't been written in a long time, and it has a set of rules that are really, really different. And so it's, it's extremely unnatural. If we struggle to understand it, it's because it's, it's, it's not at all consistent with any form of writing that we do now. But, it, but that's the danger, is that I can try to read it according to the wrong set of rules. And I can be very intentional, but misapply it, and it's like, I'm arguing for literal interpretation, yes, but again, the idea is that if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if the literature is intended to be figurative, then interpreting it literally is interpreting it figuratively. If that, you know, that's, that's the idea, and, that's, and so that's why some of this is so important, but also so difficult. And, um, and so that's why we're going to try to spend time with each of the different literary styles as well, 
to try to say, okay, this is, this is some of the unique rules here. And, uh, and again, we'll spend the most time on historical narrative because that's, you know, that's probably the biggest part of the Bible. Well, that's a very good question. What's the best way to learn and study these things? I would, I would say a good starting point is if you're at a good church where you have teachers and, and pastors that A, deal with the different literary styles, and then B, when we teach it, try to explain not only the conclusions, but explain how we got to the conclusions. And that's, and that's one of the things that I would say I, I feel a high responsibility for is that I'm, I'm at times not trying to say, okay, well, I saw this, but I'm trying to, I always try to walk people to it. So that, so I'm try, what I'm doing is I'm always modeling. Not only, I'm not trying to just teach my conclusions, I'm trying to model the process. Um, beyond that, there's some good books, and, and I should get you some, I'll, I'll, I'll even bring some next week, I'll, you know, some that I could recommend that kind of, but even most of those books tend to be a little more academic. Um, you know, but I think the best thing is, is what you want to do is you want to find people that are, you really trust their, their teaching or their scholarship, and where, again, that they are really concerned not only with teaching the conclusions, but teaching the methodology. Um, and that's what you see. It's amazing, is that when you, when you sit under that kind of teaching, over time, you start to see it. It just becomes natural. And, and it's really fun for me <laughs> to hear... Um, here at times, people will say, well, I was reading this, and they, oh, let me show you, and they'll go and they'll show me something, and they'll like, quote back to me, it's, I know I should do, and, and it's kind of like, you know, I, I know that these are things that they've heard me say, and, and they forget that they heard me say it, but they're, they're like saying, you know, like, I found this somewhere else, or somebody, I read this, some, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, great, I'm glad, yeah, and, then, and that's awesome, because I realize that there's some of those things that if I can teach, and you kind of pick it up, and you don't really realize where it picked it up, but it, it impacts your thinking, then I've done a really good job. Uh, because it's, again, going back to the very beginning, our goal is to become workmen who rightly handle the word of truth. And so my job is to train you to be workmen who rightly handle the... I, I've got to do it myself personally, but as a pastor, if my job is to equip the saints, then it's to train you to do it. So that if anybody's under, you know, under this ministry for any period of time, that hopefully you become a, a, a well-schooled workman who rightly handles the word of truth. And likewise, that's why I do Old Testament, New Testament epistle, because I'm always very intentional about covering that, you know, that diversity. The only thing I haven't done yet is, is, is wisdom. And, um, but I'm thinking about, I'm not sure when, I'm going to get to the Proverbs, but I'm not sure when yet, because that's a hard one to know how to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and the hard part with the Proverbs is, you know, you, you know that's not going to be a verse by verse. It's just like the Psalms. You know, you kind of have to figure out, okay, how am I going to handle this? You know, because if we did verse by verse, it, you know, it would take us a long time. It's probably the reason for so many denominations get off in left field. Yeah. Yeah, John. Yeah. That helps me to understand what it means. Obviously, you know, I'm not as good at it as somebody who's practiced it a lot. 
Well, and what happens is that even if we learn this and we're in a community where we're learning this and talking about it, and then you come to something like this, and then you, and people, somebody had said, well, I wish more people were here. Well, you know, what I'm encouraged by is that I'm hoping that people that are here that go back under their ABFs, and then they're, you know, they're, you're saying, well, you know, I've interpreted this because, and so you're sharing it to the congregation on a more broad scale. And that's what you hope, is that you hope that, you know, these are principles that we own more, and then as we interact, as iron sharpens iron, we kind of, we sharpen each other in it, and then we share it with other people, and it continues to expand. Uh, so that it becomes more and more part of the character of our community. So, yeah, Harry. I think one of the difficulties that you're having to deal with is our culture is not based on that. Yeah. Uh, our idea of reading is to be able to put enough letters together to read the menu for the traffic signs or something like that. And to actually sit down and try and decide what something really means is uh, not unless until you get into the act. Then sometimes it's, it's questionable. Uh, and, the, and the other thing is, I think uh, my uh, religious experience in the past before I got here has been that a lot of times people are teaching the Bible or you read it and memorize it and you're either doing it literally or, or as an allegory and that's it. Yeah. And as long as you get that far, you're in. Well, and you're right, we don't teach it, we don't model it. And again, that's one of the real dangers, too, I think, of unfortunately, when you have churches that aren't doing expository preaching. If we're not modeling it there from the pulpit, you know, then unfortunately, they're not learning it. They're not, you know, they're not picking it up by that modeling. So, I see we lost her. Oh, no. no, I had a question. Okay. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's a great point. You know, she's saying that what we hear unbelievers talk about this is fairy tale and science fiction. And that's one of the things that's really important, especially when you get into... Luke does an incredible job of the way he introduces both of his Gospels, that he makes an incredible point about, you know, that this is historical... He's studied it historically. That it is, you know, that he did the eyewitnesses. Actually, John does this, and you have, um, you know, and, and, and so you look at that and you say, well, no, this was not written as his history. And then people say, well, it was, you know, developed. I hear people, I've had people, scholars tell me, you know, it was written 300 years afterwards. So, you know, you have copy, you know, fragments of the gospel written within 150 years. So it's amazing that, let's say, the gospel of John, you're saying it was written 300 years after Jesus' death, but meanwhile, we have copies of it that are. 150 years before it's written. <laughs> and and you, you can, a scholar seriously tell me that. Um, and the, the thing is, is it, you, you look at that and you say, no, these are, and that's where I'd encourage, especially things like um, you know, some of these books that are written out, Case for Christ and uh, Cold Case Christianity and things like that, that really make an argument for the historicity of the Bible. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, I, I will tell you without question that if you... You know, people say that, and then they say, well, the, you know, like, you know, things about, the, you know, Julius Caesar and the death of Caesar. Well, we trust that. That was history. There's so much more evidence for the Bible than there is any other ancient historical document. I mean, like, literally hundreds of times more evidence. So if you're going to believe, you know, Pluto, or you're going to believe Caesar, or you're going to believe any of these things, 
there's way more evidence for the historicity of the Bible. Um, or even what people see, it's, you know, it's, um, I even have a, I think I brought in like coins that I have or things like that. I have these things from the Roman Empire. Why? Because they're not that expensive. And one of the reasons I have a few of those is because I want to be able to bring it in and say, no, this is history. These are things that I, I have a coin with Pontius Pilate there. And, and, and again, this is history. And that's, it's so common. It's not that expensive to have. Um, so that's, but we need to know how to answer those arguments because people throw it out there all the time. And, um, and, and likewise to say it's, it was not only written that way, but, but there's other evidence, external evidence, that causes us to believe that we should take it that way. That's a good point. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is the first book written about Alexander the Great came out about 300 years after his death. If you walk across America, you find people trusting everything you read about Alexander oh, yeah. the Great, but doubting everything about the Bible. Yep, that's that, which we're going to kind of introduce today, and then we'll get into a lot more next week. And that's guidelines for interpreting historical narrative. Um, so what is historical narrative? Let me start by giving a, in, um, in more of a definition. Okay, uh, definition for historical narrative is that it is a, um, it's not just history, but it's God teaching us his divine message through the accurate, though not necessarily exhaustive, and divinely inspired account of, of real historical events. Um, and, and so what we have here is it's, again, it's, it's not just history, it's not just story, storytelling, it's not biography, it's very, very different than and we often read it as like biography. Um, in fact, I've, you know, again, I know people of the Gospels, and they'll put them all together, and they'll try to do a bio- biography of Jesus. And that's a mistake, because it's not a biography. It's not trying to tell us an exhaustive account of Jesus in his life or of David or any of those things. Um, it, it's God teaching us his divine message through the accurate. It's always accurate. It's history. And, and, and again, you have, for example, what Jim had said, you know, asked that question. You see Luke, and Luke is really, really explicit of saying, I've studied this by historical evidence. I've interviewed the people. You know, these are John. These are things that we've touched, that we've seen, that we've heard. So it, it's accurate history, but it's not necessarily exhaustive um, because it's not trying to tell us an exhaustive account. It's trying to teach us something through the selective telling. Uh, and it's divinely inspired of real historical events. And uh, so again, what we're talking about is, is in the Old Testament, Genesis, Joshua, Samuel, uh, Kings, um, you know, the uh, Gospels, Acts. And, um, and so, so that's what we're talking about. Now, let's say we've got to look at it and say, what is it trying to teach us? What is it not trying to teach us? Okay, so let's, let's kind of try to break some of this down. What does historical, uh, what historical narrative does teach? Uh, for starters, and some of these, again, you see overlap of some of the principles that we've already seen. It is always teaching us about who God is and how he works in the life of men and women. Interpreting the Bible is that, in number two, in every passage, God is always the main character. So it's who he is and how he's working in the lives of men, in the lives of men and women. And so we can look at any story and you look at that and you say, okay, this is telling us about, you know, about God. We, you know, we talked about you know, you know, Esther and the example of, well, God's not even there. No, it's all God is and about how he's working in the lives of men, in the lives of men and women. Um, you could look at you know, the, the whole thing with Hosea. 
and you're saying, what's that, you know, saying, what's God doing? And, you know, telling him he's got to marry this prostitute. And what, no, it's telling us about who God is and how he works in the lives of men and women. And so he's telling us through this example, this prophet, he's telling us an example that we see something about God, about ourselves. And so that's, that's actually not, um, that's prophecy as well as, you know, I shouldn't have gone there. Um, you know, but you see the, the idea that's all historical narrative. Um, second of all, through the portrayal of lives of others, it often gives us a picture of the blessings of godly living and or the long-term... Now, this is really an important idea. And we're going to, again, kind of unpack this a little bit. Is it, how is it teaching us truth? See, we again expect didactic. We expect it to be saying, okay, this happened, this, you know, we expect this clear statement of truth of somebody did something and it was bad. You know, we expect that. And that's oftentimes not the way, in fact, usually not the way it's the truth is being taught in historical narrative. What it does is, is through the portrayal of the lives of others, it gives us the blessings, it tells us what God affirms, so you see people make decisions, and through those blessings, we're being told that that's, that's God's affirmation, long-term effects of ungodly living, including in godly people. And so that's one of the big mistakes, again, that we make, is that we have somebody that we say, you know, Abraham was a godly person, father of the nations. Well, you know, he you know, slept with his, you know, the handmaiden of Sarah because, and because he was a godly person, you know, and, and we don't ever have God say explicitly, and he did this, and God was mad, or, you know, it's like, well, God must have been okay with it. God, you know, God was, it just tells us what happened, first of all, but second of all, you look at the consequences, you don't have to read real deep into that story to figure out this was not a good idea and God was not pleased. You see, but the way it tells us and the way it teaches us is something very, very different. It's living or the long-term negative consequences of ungodly living. We're going to see this unpacked as we go further on. Um, three, it is always 100% accurate in what it claims to say. Um, it is as it records spiritual truth, it is always true. But you'll have some people that will say it's God's, it's authoritarian, I can't say that word. It's, that too, thank you. Uh, <laughs> on issues of faith and practice, and inerrant in faith and practice, but, you know, but, it's, but it's only when it speaks of spiritual things that it's, that it's true. But then when it speaks of history, it's not trying to be a science book or history book, and so therefore when it says things there, it's not true. Uh, no, the Bible is God's word. It's ordained by God. It is always 100% true in everything that it claims to say. Now, on the other hand, we can't say that because it didn't say something, well, therefore it's false. Well, again, no, it's not trying to be a history book where it makes all these historical claims. But whenever it says something about whatever it is, it's always 100% true because it's God's word. And one of the things that's really interesting is if you ever study some of this, um, the way this plays out, like especially in archaeology, there have been so many times that you'll have you know, people that will argue that the Bible is wrong because of this and because the Bible says this was the case and this was not the case. And, um, and here's what you've got to realize. There are times that you look in the Bible and it seems, there are, I will say exceptional times, that it seems to disagree with maybe what we know through aspects of archaeology. Um, 
But I don't think that that's necessarily because it disagrees, it's because our, our, our record of archaeology isn't 100% accurate. And what's amazing, and, and every year pretty much, every year it's, you hear this another amazing story about something that everybody had been saying, this is a, a story where it proves that the Bible is wrong, and you know, everybody's trumpeted, we can't believe the Bible because it's wrong on this historical fact, and then we find out something in history that, that shows that no, actually the Bible was right. Uh, let me give you, I, this was a, a great story. Some, I, I think I've shared this with some before in another setting, so you might have heard. Um, in the account of uh, the fall of Babylon in Daniel 7, uh, it talks about Belshazzar as the king. And people for, for a long time said, well, it shows that the Bible's wrong because we know from history, Belshazzar wasn't the king. It was a guy named Nabonidus. And, and uh, so therefore the Bible's wrong. It talks about this, you know, it's historically it's wrong. It's therefore unreliable. Um, and, and therefore if it's unreliable in this historical fact, you know, if, if the Bible, if God could make mistakes in history, then, you know, then it kind of gets, then it's up to us to choose, you know, where it's, where it's inerrant, where it's not. You know, that's, that's the way it happens. Now what's interesting is that it was argued for a long time. Um, however, what was really interesting, too, is that there was another piece of that story that everybody always scratched their head with. Do you remember that, you know, the, the finger wrote on the wall, and Belshazzar called Daniel in, and do you remember what he sold, told him would happen if he interpreted it? He would make him not second, third. He'd make him, and everybody wondered that. Everybody has wondered, why would he make him third in the kingdom? And nobody could ever figure that out. Well, lo and behold, four. it turns out that Nabonidus was the king when Babylon fell. However, Nabonidus knew that Babylon was likely to fall, and he kind of, you know, he had a, he had a, he had a nice, nice lake house. I mean, he, he, I forget exactly where, but he had a, he had a, basically built a palace that was, you know, hundreds of miles from the kingdom where he was kind of a non, non-present king. And so he would spend almost all his time there. And meanwhile, he had a son-in-law named Belshazzar, whom he left in charge while he was gone. Which explains the fact that when Belshazzar says, I will make you third in the kingdom, now we know why. And so suddenly you not only have history affirm the Bible, but you actually have history explain a part of the Bible that nobody can understand. And suddenly you see that the Bible was, all, was right all the way along. And, and, it, and it's affirmed in a way that no one could have guessed. Now that's what you've got to realize is that, is that is what we're saying is that, is that when the Bible makes a claim, it is always a... Does it mean that you'll, you know, that you'll be able to go and that you'll never run into somebody that will say, well, what about this? What no, you will run into that. But again, my perception is this, is that when, the, when I can look at the Bible and I can say, well, 99% of it is proven accurate and historical, and, and there's maybe a 1% where there's some question, and, and so many times that I've seen that, that part of that 1% has later been proven right by other evidence, I, I'm going uh, to make the assumption on the side of the Bible because m- so much evidence is behind it. And so I'm going to have confidence even that there's a few things that I don't fully understand. Um, because I think in time, history will come and affirm it again and again and again. Um, so again, that's, that's a really important point. Uh, four, 
Any passage written as historical narrative should be interpreted literally as historical narrative. And again, this is something that we kind of had mentioned beforehand, but here's what happens. As many, uh, many modern writers will claim inerrancy while rejecting the teaching of the Bible by claiming that certain sections didn't intend to be historical. They didn't intend to say what they are. And again, probably the best example of that is, is you know, it's not only Jonah. The most common example is Genesis 1 and 2. Um, so you'll have a lot of people that will argue that it's, it was not historical, it was not God creating, that it was some kind of an allegory, um, that, you know, that it, what it is is the story that it shows that God somehow was behind it. And even you'll have people, so God, it's, we were formed through evolution, but God was the spark. Um, now, so that's really, really common, especially in Genesis. Again, now here's what you, you, we kind of mentioned beforehand. How do we know if something's historical narrative? Again, you look at certain things, you, you look at certain rules of saying that there's guidelines to tell if something historical narrative versus it's, it's, a, you know, it's an allegory, you know, versus if it's you know, a, a parable. And there's certain things that we look for. So we say, okay, um, it mentions real places. Okay, let's think about the whole story of Garden of Eden, Genesis. It's in an interesting that God put it and uh, he put it in historical settings. The second thing is it mentions names. You know, so again, that when you have allegories, when you have, uh, you, know, you know, it tends to say a certain place, a certain person, he created man and woman, but he doesn't do that. He says it's an Adam and Eve and they had Cain and Abel and then Seth and, and it says names. Third of all, um, and when you look at that, it, it puts it in a context of some time. So now people will argue about, you know, how, how long did these people, hundreds of years, and how did that work? But the thing is, is that it's putting it in the context of time. It's not saying, you know, once upon a time, and he lived for a long time, and, but it's, it, it, when you study the flows from Adam lived this many years and had this child and had this many, and so it's putting it, there's a context of time, which again, you don't have outside of historical. That's one of the rules of historical narrative. Beyond that is kind of what was mentioned earlier is scripture interprets scripture. And so when you look at, at other passages, specifically in Genesis, Jesus numerous times, not only Jesus, Jesus is the second Adam. And what is he doing? He's clearly referring to this. Jesus refers to Adam and Eve and God created man and woman in the garden. And so he's making the whole, whole argument about marriage and divorce and the unity of marriage and all those things based on referring back to a historical event of the Garden of Eden and you know, the, the way that man and, and woman was created. You go to Genesis or uh, 1 Timothy 2, you know, Paul's talking about the church and the way the church should be organized. Uh, there's, so it's throughout scripture, these things are talked about in, in terms of historical event. And so what you look at it and you say, if it's, a, if it's written as historical narrative, we have to ask, well, what is it? Well, if it follows the rules of historical narrative, I might be uncomfortable with what it's claiming, but the fact is, evaluate it by the rules. Genesis 1 and 2 is written as historical narrative, and if it's written as historical narrative, we must interpret it as historical narrative. Uh, I, can't, I don't have the option of interpreting it as allegory or something else, because that's not, that's not, the, that's not the way it's written. Um, so does it, you know, and again, that's, that, that creates a lot of problems, but we've got to understand that. Okay, so let's keep, keep going. You with me? Okay, that's what it does teach. 
Let's talk about some things that historical narrative does not teach. And again, some of these things are, are they're linked, but, um, but you've got to see them and they play out. This is where some of the times we get in trouble because we don't understand the rules. Number one, it does not teach that everything that happened to believers should then be the norm for believers today, nor that every action done by believers should then be repeated by believers today. What we've got to realize is that historical narrative records what happens. And so what you have is you have bad people at times do good things, and you have godly people do bad things. You have the church seeking to be faithful, making decisions, and sometimes their decisions were, were things that we're going to see elsewhere throughout the rules of Scripture that you're going to see were affirmed by God, and you have other times that they're not affirmed by God. Um, it, it tells us what happened, but because something happened, even to a godly person, even to a leader, it does not necessarily teach that it should be normative in our lives, nor should we interpret every act of a godly man or woman as being normative for every believer. Um, and what we've got to realize, again, is what you're dealing with is it seldom... And, um, you know, so for example, when we... Um, if you look at the life of David... In, in, in 1 Samuel 25, uh, we read about the story about David and, and you, know, uh, you know, the whole interaction with, with Nabal and with, Gabe, uh, with Abigail. And then it says at the very end that this whole thing that, you know, that, um, that Nabal died and that, that, that he took Abigail as his wife. Um, and let me go ahead and read the very end of verse 42. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. Her and a young five women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took and Ninahem of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given his, uh, Michael, or Michael his, uh, his daughter, David's wife, to, you know, to, it happened. Now, again, I've heard people that have argued, well, okay, that was okay then. It was, you know, before the New Testament. God was kind of okay with, you know, with uh, polygamy, and it's not telling us that. And in fact, that's an argument especially the Mormons will make. They'll say, well, you know, if you talk about the early history of polygamy, well, God was all for polygamy in the Old Testament too. And, you know, and he was, so, you know, so God changes. Well, no, it's not telling us that. It's, it's telling us this is what he did. And yes, he's a godly man, but it doesn't mean that godly men don't make mistakes. And in fact, if you follow the whole story, there's going to be, we're going to see some of these principles, not only what is before in Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture, but later in David's story, you're going to see even things about the way that he's... This is the beginning of what happened with Bathsheba. So if you want to... You know, people talk about all the time, argue about David and Bathsheba and when he's walking on the palace and he shouldn't have been walking on the palace and he should have been fighting. No, this is where it started. It started all the way back here. It started all the way back here that he says, because I'm king, because I'm a powerful person, I can make my own rules when it comes to marriage and sex. And he started a compromise here that is flushed out with what happens in Bathsheba. But we don't talk about that, you see. But that's, the, that's what the story is teaching. I, I think that and, and all the, the examples, of the, especially the leaders of the Jews uh, being in polygamous relationships, are a perfect example of what you stated earlier, point two, long-term effects of ungodly living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's rare, we're, and we're going to see that. There's a few places, and a few. it's rare, but there's a few times, but it's really rare that you have that direct statement. It's always taught, 
Every time that you see something, there's always teaching about the morality and what God thought of this. It just is taught differently. See, we're expecting didactic. We're expecting this happened, God was angry. We're expecting the prophet to come and speak like he did with Bathsheba. But that doesn't happen often at all. And because we're, we're reading it by the wrong set of rules, we come to some of the wrong conclusions. If we figure out the right set of rules, we see where God does comment on it, and his comment is, is powerful and is beautiful, and it shows his patience with us, but it also shows the accumulative effect of sometimes you know, wrong decisions that, you know, that are lived with for an extended period of time. So within this, when there, is a, is, when there is not a direct comment on the righteous interpretation is knowing the rules for discovering the indirect comment on God's approval or disapproval of the actions. And so that's what we've got to try to figure out. If, if the, you know, you, it's rare that you have that didactic statement. So, you know, so, so it's seldom there. So then the key is how do we discover the indirect statement? How does God, how does he teach us? Okay, let me give you two key concepts here. Uh, first of all, look for the effects of the behavior. Now, let me give you, a, a, I'm going to take you to a really kind of strange passage on this one. I'm going to go to 1 Samuel 14. This is probably a passage, you know, that we don't study a whole lot. And it's really, really convicting in a very different way. Because we're going to see God's blessing or correction. It may not be immediate, but you look at the long-term effects. Can okay, 1 Samuel 14... Uh, what happened is that, is that Israel is, you know, everybody's running away. The Philistines are, are lined up there. And Jonathan steps up and he says, well, God can deliver you know, by few or by many. And he takes the lead and he goes with him and one other guy. And they've got one sword between them to go. And, and literally, we're, you know, you had a couple hundred you know, soldiers that were with Saul and everyone else was hiding. Suddenly, everybody says, oh, man, there's something's happening. And the Philistines start fighting amongst themselves. The Israelites come out of the caves and God starts this incredible victory. And we pick it up in verse 40, uh, 24, uh, 1 Samuel 17. And, um, and all the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food until it's evening, and I'm avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now here's what's happening. is that he's sitting there, and he has totally failed. He's been embarrassed between, you know, before Samuel, because he's, you know, he's not weighted, he's not... And, and so suddenly now he's got to try to sounding oath. It's like, okay, I'm going to be the spiritual leader. Cursed is anybody that does this. You know, basically a vow that he makes before God that we shouldn't you know, eat any food. And so meanwhile, you have all these people fighting this great battle, and you're not allowed to eat, which probably wasn't a real smart oath to make. Next verse, 25. When all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground, and when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping, and no one put his hand to his mouth, for the for people feared the oath. But Jonathan, who had not heard his father's charge against, of the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of a staff that went in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. And one of the people said, your father strictly charged all the people. And so, so Jonathan hasn't heard it, and he's walking through out of ignorance, and he takes some honey. Now here's what's amazing. The next, you know, that's the end of the day. Verse 36, Saul said, let's go down and, uh, after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning. Let's not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems uh, good to you, the people said. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And when Saul inquired of God, shall I go after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? 
he did not answer that day. And Saul said, come here, for, uh, you're the leaders of Israel, and know that some sin has risen. So basically saying, should I go to this? And God, God basically didn't answer. He said, no. So, so, so Saul says, okay, there must be a reason. There's some sin. And he calls out, well, who's sinned? Who's, who's removed God's blessing? And so then they, I'm not going to read the whole thing. They start doing lots, and they do lots to see, you know, that, and God led through that means. And they do lots, and it comes out to Saul's family, and then it comes out to Jonathan. And, and he looks at Jonathan, who was the guy, the only one that had faith that whole, started the whole thing. And he said, Jonathan, what have you done? And Jonathan's like, I don't even know about this. You know, why did you? Now, here's what I want you to realize. You want a powerful thing of talking about how serious it is to take an oath before God? Here you have Saul made a dumb promise to prove that he was spiritual, but he made an oath before God, and what he did, this ungodly person making a dumb promise to to kind of save a little bit of face for his failure, and his son didn't hear it, God still held him accountable. And the victory was stopped because God took seriously this promise, this dumb promise that Saul made that Jonathan didn't know of, but yet it was still binding. Now, if you want to talk about, in the Ten Commandments, don't take the Lord's God name in vain. People often take, don't, you know, don't use God's name as a swear word. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, don't make any dumb promises to God. Don't say, you know, I, you know, you know, God, so help me, I'm going to do that. You know, don't, don't do that. Don't, I promise to God. No, you don't do that. Because if you invoke God's name, God will take it seriously even if you don't. That's a powerful message, isn't it? You see, but it's right there. It's right there. It's, you see it through the consequences. And, um, you know, but it's, again, it's one of those things that we take time. The behavior, the second rule is look for the commentary and other scriptures on the event. Okay, so here's what we realize again. Scripture interprets scripture. We're going to see this idea coming out. It's not just in the effects within the story, within the historical narrative, but what you've got to realize, sometimes it's other parts of historical narrative, but especially didactic sections. What you have is you have all kinds of other teaching that gives evidence that, you know, that that gives guidelines to the whole idea of, of, of the events that are taking place. So let's take the whole issue of David and multiple wives. All right? So we can look at the consequences. Is there other... His- let's not even go afterwards. Let's go beforehand. Let's start all the way back to creation. Okay, what happened to say God made a man and he made a woman and he said that the man should be joined to the woman and the two of them will be joined and become one flesh. So use my intention. This is my plan. I have people argue again, well, where does it say, you know, no, it says it all back in Genesis that God said in the very beginning, this is my one man, one woman joined together for life, one flesh. And so that means it's not one man and two women that means it's not two men, it's not two women, it's not, no, it's one man, one woman. That's God's design. And so it's right there way in the beginning. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, and you can see in Deuteronomy 17, and, he's, and God's talking about this time that they're going to want a king. 
so when it says, when you enter the land of God, the Lord, uh, the, enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled it, you'll say, let us set a king over you, a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must, not, or he must be from amongst your brothers, do not place a foreign over you, uh, one who is not a brother of Israelite. The king, wherever, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And you know what it's saying? And you're going to live in this culture where, yes, why do you have harems? Because it shows the power that you have. And, and you're going to live in this culture where that is culturally acceptable and where it's expected for the king to show his power by having multiple wives. And so here way back, way back when, way before there was a king, all the way back in Deuteronomy, God's saying, something's going to happen. One day you're going to get tired and you're going to want a king like everybody else, but don't have a king like everyone else. And every other king is going to look to establish his credentials and his power and his, uh, you know, his, his royalty by his multiple wives. No, but your king shouldn't have multiple wives. In the Bible, the commentary is right there in Scripture. It's not just reading about the consequences. It's actually right there, right in the beginning. Um, and so, um, let me go. We've got maybe time for one or two more points, and then we'll uh, wrap up. Um, Second of all, while the Bible is 100% accurate in all it seeks to say, it does not intend to be a science book or a history book. Now, these kind of go together. On the one hand, it's historical accurate in everything that it says, but on the other point, what we've got to realize is that it's not didactic. It's not a biography. It's not, you know, when it gives us, when it, gives us it tells us science, it's 100% what it's saying, but it's not intending to be scientific. People have argued about this one. Joshua 10, it talks about this, this whole argue, battle with Joshua and the Amorites. And it says that, you know, that, that uh, you know, Joshua said to the Lord, O sun, stand still over Gibran. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation had avenged itself and its enemies. And Now, people have argued against that, that the Bible is unreliable because it says the sun stood still. And it's saying that therefore, you know, it's saying that, the, you know, based on this, you had, this was part of the whole rejection of Capernaum and that theory is saying that, you know, that the, that, you know, that the earth wasn't the center of the, the solar system, you know, that the sun was the solar. And they said, well, no, because this, you know, the sun stood still, the sun moves around the earth. And what you've got to realize is that it's telling a story and it's using it language. So if you, if you get back, you know, if you get up today and you say, well, man, it's a beautiful sunrise. And I thought you were a science believer. You know, I can't believe you deny science. You know, you do. No, you're not. When you're saying that, you're using language of the day to communicate something. You're not trying to make a scientific statement that you think the sun is really rising and the earth is still. And, and it's foolish for us to hold the Bible to this, you know, to this thing. They're saying, well, well you know, because it said, this, you know, the sun stood still. Therefore, it's saying that the, you know, the earth is the center of the universe and the sun moves. No, it wasn't intending to say that. It wasn't trying to make a scientific statement. It's, it's, it's recording a historic fact that is make a scientific statement because it's not, it's not a didactic book. And there are numerous places like this where we put the Bible, we try to set a, a set of rules on the Bible that we wouldn't put on any other book. Um, and it's basically because we want to disprove it, so we're looking for some excuse to argue against it. Likewise, this next one is, is 
is, is related to that. The Bible does not intend to be a history book um, that records the history of mankind, but is a theological book about God's working in the history of mankind. And again, here's what we have to realize. It's not intending to be a history book, which is, again, the whole idea. It's a selective telling of the story. And so you see, again, we've seen the example of like the, you know, the synoptic gospels. It's not trying to tell us everything that happened. In, the, in fact, some of the gospels, you, when, you, when you study them, they're not, they're not designed to be, some of them aren't telling the story chronologically. Some of the gospels tell it thematically, and they're very intentionally non-chronological. To be a biography, it's not trying to be a history book. It's saying, let's teach some theological ideas about God through the proper telling of history. Um, but another example, too, is that as we get in trouble with this, I think I've used the example with Acts. When you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts takes us part the way through you know, uh, Peter's life and then drops it, and then takes part the way through Paul's life and drops it. And I've seen people that study the book of Acts, and they feel like, well, we need to tell the rest of the story of Paul's life. Well, no, it's not trying to tell us the story of Paul's life. It's not a biography. And it intentionally, as we saw a couple week, uh, several weeks ago, it intentionally didn't finish Paul's life because that was part of its teaching. And for us to try to now squeeze it into the rules of biography or didactic or these other things, we're actually missing part of the intent of what God's trying to teach us. Let me do this last one, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Um, its purpose is not to give us a detailed account of past events, but to teach us about God, ourselves, and his call upon our lives through the accurate recounting of historical events. Now, here's what you've got to realize. It's, 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 it's accurate, but it's not intending to give us a detailed account. And so what it means is it gives us a very selective account. And so sometimes we saw, like with the story of, of Joseph, you know, it, 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 it skips seven, it tells us, in a, you know, like, 15 verses about this one thing trying to find his brother. And why is it? It's telling us all this here and then it's leaving all this other stuff out. Because it's not trying to give us a detailed account of the past events. It's trying to teach us about God through the accurate but very intentional selective telling us of those historical events. And there might be some things that would be really interesting to know more. And, uh, you know, I don't know if many of you remember there was a uh, movie that was a... a, a an animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, about the life of Joseph. And it was interesting because there were several things in there that were actually based on what's called Midrash. They're stories, non-biblical stories about, um, about the ancient Hebrews. Interesting to know if that happened, but we don't know. You know so they talked about one of the things was, this, is it in Midrash, they talked about as they were going through the Red Sea, they saw this whale that swam, swam by and they could see the fish, and, which would be interesting. And, and again, The Prince of Egypt showed that but it's not trying to tell us the history of it. I mean, it'd be interesting to know. I kind of wonder what it'd be like. You know, you're going through there, you probably had some junior high boys that are kind of saying, hey, watch this, you know. Out of the water, you know, isn't that cool? You know, I mean, it'd be interesting to know if that happened. It'd be really interesting to see, because there are so many things in there that it'd be like, man, that'd be great to know historically, and, and we can speculate, and we can read different sources, and and people that try to add history to you know, what it was like when Jesus was a baby. And, and, but the thing is, is, it's not trying to give us a historical account. It's not trying to tell us everything. It intentionally doesn't tell us everything. 
It tells us a very selective thing because the goal is to teach us about God, about ourselves, and his call upon our lives through the accurate but selective retelling of these historical events. So that's, that's where we'll wrap up today. It's hopefully a good introduction. Next week, we're going to kind of really dig into these rules for interpreting um, historical narrative. And again, so there's not only some great rules that are going to be there, but we'll spend a lot of time kind of fleshing out those through a different uh, study of Scripture. And uh, so it's, it's a joy to get to do this. So thank you for, for being here. Next Sunday, we are doing pizza if you want to come and join us early. And uh, so we're going to do that down in the parlor at 545. And uh, let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the chance that we have to come together and, Father, to enjoy this time. I thank you for each person that's here for their commitment to become a student of your word. Thank you allow us to become people who rightly handle the word of truth. Father, thank you that you have not given us some great mystery, some book that, is, uh, that you have to be a scholar to understand. But, Father, that one of the basic rules is the perspicuity, the understandability. But, Father, even although it's understandable, there are guidelines that help us to understand it even better. So, Father, help us to understand. Father, not only that we would know the rules from a scholarly perspective, but, Father, that we would know how to connect with you and connect with your truth in and, and a very practical, real life way that, that impacts our thinking and impacts our lives. Father, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.